From the in-town Jewish Academy in Atlanta, Georgia, I am Rabbi Ari Solish, and this is Knowledge on the Deeper Side. In this podcast, we discuss the most inspiring and stimulating Jewish ideas, ideas that challenge the way you think and feel. To sponsor a class or episode, please visit intownjewishacademy.org slash sponsor. And now, on to the episode. Right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to a daily power parsha for Tuesday, May third, two thousand twenty-two. It is great to see you here. Today is a very special day. Um, today is the first yard site of Ray Bellman's sister, Lillian Sugarman, um, and the uh, that we're dedicating the learning to Lillian's memory. Tell me, remind me, Lillian's um, Hebrew name. Uh, Leah. Leah Bas. Leah Bas Zevov. Zevov. Her neshama should have an aliyah, and she should indeed be a good advocate on high for you and the mishpacha, and 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 only advocate for blessings. Ray, give us uh, as we get started. Give us a uh, like a short anything that comes to mind if you, if you wish to share something okay. about your sister. Lillian was involved in the world of disabilities for forty years, for which she was. Uh, invited to join the President's Committee on Disabilities. I think that happened because our youngest sister, Sally, was Down syndrome. And Lillian opened many doors for Sally because in those days, if my mother let Sally go to the mailbox, neighbors would say, you let her go out. You mm. let her, you know, people see her. Right. Um, Sally was a love. She loved music. She loved football. Um, she was always... Uh, chosen to like present flowers to Yitzhak Berman. Uh, she was also, um, um, I don't know what you call the person, but she was um, to the football team at the University of Delaware. She was there, yeah. what's that called, <laughs> whatever. Um, and so we were blessed having her for 59 years. She outlived wow. the age expectancy. And that's because she was in a good place, which my sister found for her. Amazing, amazing. So your sister, her deeds should indeed um, uh, be a blessing for her and for you and for the whole family. And um, we know that on a yard site, one thing that happens is that all of a person's good deeds, the light of all of the goodness that they accomplish in this world, the light shines brightly on, on the day of the, of the anniversary of their passing on the yard site. So indeed, your sister's energy and, and, and soul is shining brightly. And um, we should, you, should, you should feel that and you should benefit from that and should be a blessing for us all. Let us say. Thank you, Amen. Amen. Okay. All right. Let's jump now into the learning. Joy, great to see you. Welcome. Um, okay. I'm going to share my screen. Let's jump in. So we're going to start with the second reading of the Torah portion, which is Kedoshim, Leviticus 19. I mentioned yesterday that this Torah portion has a lot of, a lot of mitzvot, a lot of Jewish uh, law. And it, it's a little all over the place. When I say all over the place, you, know, you, you get a wide variety of, of conversations. It's great to keep th- things exciting, keeps, keeps the conversation fluid. Um, Kedoshim, of course, means holy, and it comes from the opening verses of the Torah portion where God tells us to be holy, just like He is holy, we should be holy. And all of these laws 
constitute Judaism's understanding of what holiness is. Holiness is not about self-secluding on the top of a mountain and meditating and levitating. Holiness is being a mensch, acting justly and acting like a person should, acting like a mensch. By the way, speaking of this, let me stop, stop sharing for a second and I'll share this. We have next week, we're starting our JLI course, what makes Jewish law Jewish, it's called Beyond Right. Beyond Right. And it's all about Jewish law and the values that shape Jewish law. So we're going to be looking at the, at the legal teachings of Judaism and then peeling back the layers to find out. So what are the ethical underpinnings of this law? Because the law doesn't emerge out of nowhere. The law is driven by a value system. So what are the values of Judaism that then give birth or give rise to this uh, dazzling system of law? That starts next week, Tuesday night, May 10th, Thursday, May 12th, and it aligns with what we're saying today because in Judaism, civil law, which is the bulk of this week's Torah portion, civil law is kedoshim, is holy, because civil law is driven by holy values. So again, these two, the theme of the course, the theme of this week's Torah portion align perfectly, and that's what we're in the middle of right now. So let's jump in, reading to Leviticus chapter 19, verse number 15, and yes, you guessed it, we're starting right away with civil law. You shall commit no injustice in judgment. Okay, now obviously that can mean many different things. We'll see Rashi soon. Commit no injustice in judgment. You shall not favor a poor person or respect a great man. You shall judge your fellow with righteousness. And the Torah is very precise. If, if there's a poor person, if you're the judge and there's a poor person in front of you, don't favor them because they're poor. If the case, if the law sides against them, that's the, that's the way it is. In other words, don't be biased out of Rachmanus, out of compassion. Nor should you be biased because the, the person is wealthy or respected or has connections. That's also wrong, right? So don't favor a poor person. And likewise, don't respect or favor a great man. Don't go either way. So if the poor person is guilty, they're guilty. If the, if the wealthy man is guilty, they're guilty. That's just the way it is. So don't go either way to either extreme or to any side of bias or prejudice, whether it's the underdog or the favorite, you got to judge the case righteously. And that's what the, how, the Torah, how the verse concludes, judge your fellow with righteousness, judging what's right. Now, there, again, there are more layers of meaning. There's, there's a, all commentaries and the Talmud on this, but that's a, that's, that's a simple reading of the first verse of this, of this reading. Let's continue. You shall not go around as a gossip monger amidst your people. This is the prohibition against rechilut, which is gossiping. You shall not stand by the shedding of your fellow's blood. That means simply if you see somebody in harm's way, you must step in. It's an obligation to step in and assist. I am the Lord. By the way, this last piece, sorry, both of these pieces are completely foreign to, to, to U.S. law. Number one, you shouldn't be a gossip monger. No gossip? You kidding me? America's built on gossip, right? I'm not going to say founded, but you go to the checkout aisles, gossip, gossip uh, magazines everywhere, websites, etc. 
So no gossip is a Jewish value. It's a Jewish law. Very unique. The second, second half of the verse is also unique. Don't stand by the shedding of your fellow's blood. In the, in the United States, there's no law with rare exceptions. But the by and large uh, rule is that you're not obligated to step in and save someone else from harm. I mean, unless you're a doctor. And even a doctor who has, on the one hand, an obligation to help save a life, also needs protection from the law in case they try to help and it doesn't work out so they don't get sued, right? We call this the Good Samaritan, Good Samaritan laws. So the point is that there's no obligation, again, with rare exceptions, to step in and help someone in U.S. law. Jewish law is different because Jewish law is driven by different considerations. Again, I'm not, I'm not trying to make this into one line plug for our course next week, but it kind of aligns perfectly. There is a system that drives Jewish law. There's a value system that drives Jewish law. So when the Torah says, don't gossip, and you don't have that law in the United States, well, where does that come from? When the Torah says you have to step in and help someone who's in danger, and U.S. law says, nah, you don't, you don't have to. That comes from somewhere. That's where we're, and so it's important to think about these. All right, verse 17. You shall not hate your brother in your heart. There you go. As, as if U.S. law has something about that. You should not hate, again, I'm not knocking U.S. law. I'm just, it's, 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 these are all unique laws, not all, but many of these are unique to Jewish law. You shall not hate your brother in your heart. You shall surely rebuke your fellow. If you see somebody doing something wrong, reproach them, right? Um, give them some reproof. Give them some, some guidance, some, some critique. But you shall not bear a sin on his account. Bit of a cryptic message over there. Um, if you put these two together... You can understand the third part of the verse. Don't hate your brother in your heart. In other words, when you see somebody doing something wrong, or what you believe is wrong, don't hate them. Rather, instruct them uh, constructively about what to do. And that's what it means to rebuke a fellow. But don't bear sin on his account. In other words, if you were angry, and then you started giving guidance, that would lead to sin. In other words, that would lead to a negative outcome. But if you don't hate them, and you give them some critique... If it's coming from a place of love, then it's going to be completely constructive and it will be accepted as such and it will be unsinful. It will not be a sin. It will be beautifully constructive. Verse 18. You shall neither take revenge nor bear a grudge against the members of your people. You shall love your fellow, your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. And here you have verse 18. This is chapter 19 of Leviticus, verse 18. We have what many consider to be the, the key verse of the entire Torah. Love your neighbor, love your fellow as yourself. Rabbi Akiva said, This is one of the great principles, one of the great foundations of the Torah. Love your fellow, love your neighbor as yourself. It, and before that, the, the first half of the verse talks about not taking revenge or bearing a grudge. And certainly those two are connected. If you're taking, if you're if you're bearing grudges and taking revenge, then you're probably not loving your neighbor as yourself. So the idea is that even if somebody does something wrong to you, judge them favorably, and therefore, in that in, in that context, you'll be able to love them as yourself. Let's continue, verse nineteen, and we'll go back to Rashi. But I wanted to give you at least a little bit of understanding for each of these. You shall observe my statutes. God says you shall not crossbreed your livestock with different species. That's very uniquely Jewish. Don't mix animals together. You shall not sow your field 
with a mixture of seeds. Don't mingle the seeds in the field. And number three, three forbidden mixtures, a garment which has a mixture of shatnes, wool and linen, shall not come upon you. Do not wear a garment woven of shatnes threads, i.e. a mixture of wool and linen. So three prohibitions, each are a subcategory of the general prohibition of kilayim, which is the idea of mixtures or forbidden mixtures. So number one, don't mix, don't crossbreed the livestock with different species. Don't mix animals together. That's one mixture that's forbidden. Number two, don't sow your field with a mixture of seeds. Don't mix two types of plants together. That's a forbidden mixture. And number three, in garments, in, in clothing, don't mix wool and linen together. That is likewise a prohibition. Next, verse number 20. If a man lies carnally with a woman and she is a handmaid designated for a man and she has not been fully redeemed nor had her document of emancipation been granted her, there shall be an investigation. They shall not be put to death because she has not been completely freed. In other words, she is a handmaid some sort of indentured servitude. She is still in the state of indentured servitude. And then they have a relationship, so she's not married or betrothed to someone else. So therefore, it's not considered a case of adultery, which would theoretically, theoretically carry, or potentially carry a, a, capital, uh, a capital punishment. It doesn't have that, that, that it doesn't have that, um, doesn't have that, um, what's the word I'm looking for, that punishment. In this case, it's still not right, but it doesn't carry the, potentially the death penalty. He shall bring his guilt offering to the Lord to the entrance of the tent of meeting, a guilt offering ram, and the coin shall effect atonement for him with the guilt offering ram before the Lord for the sin that he had committed. He shall be forgiven for the sin that he had committed. So it is a sin, it's a wrong, but it's not considered to be a capital offense considering her status. Okay, let's go back and do Rashi's. What I want to do today is both reading two and three for Tuesday, and we'll get caught up. So let's let's jump into some Rashi's. Here we go. You shall not commit. We start off. We, we we're going back, and we start off with the uh, the rules governing judges. You shall commit no injustice in judgment. Rashi says this verse teaches us that a judge who corrupts the law is called unjust, hated, and disgusting, fit to be destroyed, and an abomination. Wow. That's a lot of adjectives for the judge who corrupts the law. Okay? And then the rest of the Rashi is going to give verses that prove this, but we don't have to, we don't, you can read the proof text on your own. That's the core. The core is that a judge who manipulates the law, a judge who corrupts the law, worst of the worst. You shall not favor a poor person, Rashi says. This means that you shall not say this man is poor and the rich man is obliged Sorry, ob- ob- obligated to provide him with sustenance. Therefore, we'll acquit him in judgment and he will thus be sustained respectably. Okay, so I-, I gave a less sophisticated scenario before. Oh, I feel bad. This guy's poor. You know what? I'll, I'll allow him to win the case. Rashi gives a more logical um, rationale for this, where the judge might say, look, you have a rich man and a poor man. The rich man anyway has a mitzvah to give tzedakah to the poor man. So you know what? I'll, I'll, I'll make it happen. Right? The rich man and the poor man are fighting over some money, so I'll give it to the poor man. Even though it should maybe go to the rich man, I'll give it to the poor man, and therefore I'm kind of enforcing a tzedakah in this situation. 
That's wrong. The Torah says, don't do that. That might be the rationale, but it's still wrong because justice is justice. Tzedakah is tzedakah. Charity is charity. Two different realities. You can't mix in the charity in a court case. Two, two different things. Don't corrupt justice by leaning toward favoring the poor person, even though there's a good rationale or what seems to be a good rationale behind it. Nor show respect to the great. This means that you shall not say this man is rich, the son of a, prom- a son of prominent people. How can I embarrass him and behold his shame? That would surely be a punishable act. Therefore, Scripture says, or respect the great man. Don't lead, don't rule in favor of the rich man because he's rich and has the connections. By the way, if there's one rule for judges that should be seared in a judge's mind and heart, perhaps it's this one. Showing respect to the great. How many times do we hear of court cases where somebody who has some measure of privilege is privileged by the court system because of that privilege? I know I use the word privilege a bunch of times, right? It happens all the time. It happens all the time that people will, you know, skate through the justice system, the legal system, because of their connections. I'm not even going to get started with diplomatic immunities and and that whole whole situation because that's a whole other can of worms. My point is, that in Judaism, there's one system of law. How do you know when, when a system, when a just system is corrupt or not corrupt? How many systems of law do you really have? Right? How many systems of law? If, if, if two people come into the court facing the same charge, the same evidence, is it possible that they're going to get a different, a different uh, judgment? If so, the question is why? The question is why? We have to take a long and stark look in the mirror and ask ourselves the question in our legal system here in the United States, why is it possible ever that people from different socioeconomic classes, different communities, can come in for the same charges, one gets a slap in the wrist, and the other one gets much more than a slap in the wrist. The Torah says, whether you're going to buy, to prejudice the case out of favoring the poor or favoring the rich, both are not okay. There has to be one system of law that just is what it is. Okay. Back inside. Very important for a justice system. Okay. Well, but also, yeah. in, if you talk about our justice system, we do have a rich person can buy a very good lawyer. And that's an X factor. You're right. That is an X factor that's harder to take in consideration because Jewish law doesn't have this whole deal of lawyers and attorneys and a, it's just, as I mentioned many times, it's an inquisitorial system, not an adversarial system. And we have an adversarial system of law where each side is pitted against the other. The prosecution is against the defense. The defense is against the prosecution. And they're fighting it out. And either the ju- judge or jury is observing that, 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 essentially, that debate. Whereas in Judaism, it's a direct inquisitorial system where the judges directly examine the witnesses. They examine the facts of the case. You don't have lawyers that are arguing against each other. You have literally the judges that are, that are honed in on the case. I mean, that's the way it's supposed to work, at least in Jewish law, in, 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 which we don't really have today in a, in a, in a, in a comprehensive way. But in, um, when, I, when I say we don't have today, we don't have like a Sanhedrin, a high court, and layers of courts. You have, a, you have rabbis, and you, have, you could have a bet in, but it's not, it's not fully fleshed out today. The point is, that when you deal with a system of lawyers, when it's an adversarial system, you're right. You pay big bucks 
And now your lawyer can wipe the floor with the other side. So who's going to win? That's why in the Jewish system, it doesn't matter what kind of lawyer you have, the judges are going to be asking the tough questions. They're not going to be impressed by a good lawyer. They're going to examine directly the evidence and the witnesses. There's no lawyer in between. So, again, there's just different systems. Vis-a-vis our system of law, I would, I would posit and, and argue that even in absence of, of, of purchasing a, a high-end lawyer, you know, a, a very expensive lawyer, when, when two defendants come in two different, uh, from two different communities, it's possible. It's possible. And it's happened before that that influences the judges, that influences the jury, etc. And it's, it's problematic. It's very problematic. Even aside from the lawyers. You're right. The lawyers is, you know, an, another, another avenue of, of the challenge. Okay. Let's jump in. Um, judge your fellow with righteousness. And that is simply do it, do judge the right way. Another explanation Rashi says, judge your fellow favorably, give him the benefit of the doubt. Innocent until proven guilty? Perhaps. Perhaps that's what Rashi said. Okay, no gossiping. No gossiping. Rashi says, I say that since all those who instigate, instigate quarrels and speak evil talk go into their friends' houses in order to spy out what evil they can see there or what evil they can hear to tell in the marketplace, they're called Holche Rachel, which is those who go about spying. Look at that. Rashi says, what's going on here? Rashi says, how does someone have gossip to peddle? Probably, again, this is before the internet age, before telephones. How would somebody have gossip about you? They would probably go into your home and pretend to be nice and your friend and look around and listen in and then report back what they heard and what they saw and heard. That's what Rashi says. So they're like spies. So he says, etymologically, the idea of Rachil is like Ragel, which is like Meraglin, the spies. Someone who's gossiping is also moonlighting as a spy. But the truth is, even in today's day and age, there's still some sort of espionage that's required to be a gossiper. I mean, I, I know there's more information that's out there, but at the end of the day, you have to like find, if you really want good, if you're a good gossiper and giving information that someone's never, to someone who's never heard it before, you got to get the good juice. And to get the good juice, you got to work hard. You got to really, you know, sniff out the uh, the juicy stories, and then and then reveal them. Now, I'm not saying one should do this. I'm just saying because the Torah says not to. But if somebody were to do this, it would be somewhat of a, of an experience. And thus, Rashi says it's like an espionage. It's like espionage. Um, I feel like I'm going to leave the rest of the Rashi because it is grammatical in nature. And let's move on. You shall not stand by the shedding of your fellow's blood, Rashi says. Do not stand by watching your fellow's death when you are able to save him. For example, Rashi gives a very practical example. If he is drowning in the river, or if a wild beast or robbers come upon him, don't just stand there, do something. That's what Torah tells us. By the way, very important caveat. If by helping out, you're putting your own life in mortal danger, most, most commentaries say you don't have to. There's a, there's a discussion amongst the great, like the great Jewish sages and, and codifiers of, of, of Jewish law. You know, when we talk about the obligation to save someone else's life and it puts your own life in danger, are you obligated to do so? Is it optional 
or perhaps you should not do so because you're not allowed to put your own life at risk when it wasn't at risk. In other words, when Rashi says here that if someone's drowning, jump in and save them, is that only when the water's calm and you're a good swimmer? What happens if they're being washed away by a raging flood? Are you still obligated to jump in even though you might lose your own life, God forbid? So most commentators say you definitely do not have to. Some even say you shouldn't because you're not allowed to throw away your own life. Because right now you're, on, you're on, on solid ground. You're not in danger. To jump into, let's say, a raging river. To jump into a raging river to potentially save that person. But also potentially harm your own life. Put your own life at risk. Or definitely put your own life at risk. Potentially lose your own life. Many commentators say, don't, don't do that. But some say you're allowed to do that. Certainly no one says it's obligatory. I mentioned before there's a debate. But no one says that you're obligated under typical circumstances, to risk, to literally risk your own life to save someone else's. Um, okay, let's continue. These get into life and death scenarios, which Jewish law speaks about extensively, and it's a very complicated and fascinating topic. I am the Lord, Rashi says, faithful to pay reward and exact punishment. And depends if you did the right thing or not. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, rebuke your fellow, and... Do not bear a sin on his account, Rashi says, i.e., in the course of rebuking your fellow, do not embarrass him in public. In other words, Rashi explains that when it says, rebuke your fellow, but don't bear a sin on his account, that means rebuke, but in the right way. Not in a way I mentioned before, rebuke out of love. Rashi gives a practical scenario, rebuke, not in public. Because if you embarrass someone in public, it's not constructive, it's devastating, it's embarrassing, and that is not cool. Not to embarrass somebody in public. Okay, no, don't take revenge or bear a grudge. So Rashi explains, what's the difference between taking revenge and bearing a grudge? Okay, so re, for example, he says to him, lend me your sickle. So one guy says to, so one neighbor says to the other, lend me your sickle. And the other guy says, no. The next day, the, the second guy says to the first guy, so again, okay. Ruven asks Shimon, can I borrow your sickle? Shimon says, no. The next day, Shimon now needs to borrow something from Reuben. Wow, how the tables have turned. He says, lend me your axe. So if he says to him, I will not lend it to you because you didn't lend it to me, that's revenge. So he says, wow, how rich is that? You want an axe? Oh, where were you yesterday, Mr. Sickle? No way, no axe for you. That's bearing revenge. Okay, that's taking revenge. And what is bearing a grudge? That is, for example, in this case, where Shimon says, Reuben, let me your axe. And was the, the scenario still played out with the sickle day one. Now day two, the second guy says to the first guy, give me your axe. And Larry replies, oh, no, no, I'm sorry. Okay, let me try that again. I don't know why Rashi is switching it around, but he does. Okay, so Reuben says to Shimon, starting from the beginning, let me your axe. And Shimon says, no. Then the next day, Shimon says to Reuben, let me your sickle. Now, if he says to him, here it is for you. I am not like you who did not lend it to me. This constitutes bearing a grudge. For he keeps the hatred in his heart, even though he does not take revenge. He says, oh, so now you want a sickle? Okay, I'll give it to you. Not like what you did to me yesterday. Uh-huh. So now you're still like reminding him of how he didn't lend it to you yesterday. Okay, so you're, st you're still holding on to it. That's what it means to bear a grudge. So revenge means you're actually punishing them by not, you know, not doing what they didn't do for you. Bearing a grudge means you'll give them, you'll give them the sickle. But you'll remind them that you're better than them. <laughs> Remember, you didn't give it to me, I'll give it to you. So that's, that's still bearing a grudge. Both, by the way, are prohibited. You shall love... 
is this in our society, right, a law? No. In Jewish law, yes. It's a law. Because Jewish law is based on values. Join us next week. Okay. Next, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Rabbi Kiva says... Can I make a comment? Huh? Can I make a comment? Yeah, for sure. It reminds me of the term that I just kind of had a little thing with my sister. Um, that people, the expression, I can't, I will forgive you, but I won't forget. Oh, good. My contention is that that is bearing a grudge. Yes. In uh, this example. I think so. I think you're right. I'll forgive you. I'll give you the sickle, but I'm not forgetting that you didn't give it to me yesterday. That's good. That's a good example, right? Forgiving, but not forgetting. By the way, it's a very high standard that somebody shouldn't hold on to, to, to very high standard. But whoever said Torah is easy? No one ever said that it's easy. God never said, oh, this is a piece of cake. You're going to love this. 613 commandments, super easy, easy breezy. You'll knock it out in an hour, right? No, it's a lifelong commitment to the values of, of Judaism, values of Torah. Nothing easy about it, but it elevates us to menshi status. Okay, you shall love your neighbors yourself, Rabbi Kiva says, as I mentioned before, this is a fundamental principle of the Torah. Next, you shall observe my statutes, and Rashi says they are the following. You shall not cross your livestock with different species, etc. Chukim, statutes, refers to the decrees of the divine king, which have no rationale. Uh, you might have wondered before, why should I not mix the an- crossbreed animals or cr- uh, um, uh, mix seeds in the field or wear woolen and linen together? The answer is because God said so. It's called a chok. These are chukim. These are ir- super rational decrees that don't necessarily have a, a meaning behind it. It's because God said so. Um, okay, a garment that has a mixture, why is the status in Scripture says you shall not wear a mixture of wool and linen together? I might think that one may not wear even shearings of wool beaten together with stocks of linen. Therefore, Scripture says a garment, thus excluding pieces of wool and linen combined together, which do not form a garment. Okay, I feel like I'm going to explain this without getting into the all of the details of the Rashi. Basically, it just, it means like this. It means that you can wear, you can layer your garments with wool and linen, that's not a problem. You just can't have a garment that's woven of the two together in one, in one, uh, in one garment. All right, so Shatniz explains it to me, a combination of wool and linen that are intertwined. Okay. Um, okay, so in the case of the, of the uh, forbidden relationship that, that our reading ended off on, right? If a man lies calling with a woman, she's a hammy designated for a man. Okay, so it says that they, they did something wrong, but it's not a capital case, but there's still uh, atonement that needs to happen. So Rashi explains that we're speaking of a Canaanite handmaid who was partly a handmaid and partly a free woman, who was betrothed to a Hebrew slave who was permitted to marry a handmaid. Uh, seems like a very, very specific type of scenario here. Very specific type of, of scenario. She's not fully redeemed because she was owned, originally owned. She was working originally for two masters and one freed her and one she's still working for and therefore so she still has, she has this kind of in-between status. 
Anyway, bottom line is um, that there's no death penalty. Um, her marriage or her betrothal, she was betrothed to, to another slave or an entered servant, but it's not binding yet because they're still in the status of slaves. Um, that's why there's no death penalty. But if she had been freed fully, her marriage would be binding and then it would be liable. He, the guy who was with her, would, that, who wasn't her betrothed, would be liable to the death penalty for the sin of adultery. Okay. All right. That's that situation. Um, okay. Let's move on. Okay. Reading number three. Here we go. Reading number three, we get another variety of, of Jewish law, Torah law. When you come to the land of Israel and you plant any food tree, you shall surely block its fruit from use. It shall be blocked from you for use for three years, not to be eaten. So essentially anything that grows for the first three years, and some trees don't grow right away. I believe that we, we talked about this and I'm pretty sure it was in a different place in, in the Torah. Maybe it's repeated in, in Devarim and Deuteronomy. But I remember Sarah asked, the, I think Sarah, you asked the question about, okay, how do we count the years? Is that from when fruits start appearing or from when you start plant, when, when it starts planting, when you plant it? This is from when you plant the tree. From when you plant the tree, the first three years, whatever grows cannot be eaten. You just let it go and it's, uh, it's not for you. Not kosher, as it were, for the first three years. And in the fourth year, all its fruit shall be holy, a praise to the Lord, which means that it has a holy status and it needs to be brought to the temple, etc., as a gift, as an offering to God, but it's not, it's not, um, it's not to be eaten for private consumption. So you pl- plant a fruit tree. Um, I, I think you guys know by now that we have a, a, a peach tree in our front yard. It's not when you purchase the house. It's not when you, you know, when, it's when the tree was planted. So the first three years, you don't need it. And it's also in Israel, not in Atlanta. So it wouldn't apply in multiple levels over here. First three years, you don't need it. The fourth year, it's holy status. In the fifth year, Torah says, you may eat its fruit. Do this in order to increase its produce for you. I am the Lord your God. This is the way to increase its produce. If you want a healthy tree, follow this model. Three years, don't touch. Fourth year, for God. Fifth year, now it's yours. Then your trees will be healthy. Also use orthogrow. I don't know if orthogrow is a thing. I remember the commercials for orthogrow. I don't know if they, they're for, for trees or not. But either way, this is the spiritual way to get your tree blessed. Let's continue. You should not eat over the blood. Whoa. Don't eat over. We, last week we talked about don't drink blood or eat blood. Now we're talking about eating over the blood. What does that mean? We'll see in Rashi. You shall not act on the basis of omens or lucky hours. Okay. Here we get into superstitions, prohibitions against superstitions and other forms of, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Like um, practices of the occult. Verse 27, right? We move quickly through various themes. You shall not round off the corner of your head. By the way, that means the hair of your head, not actually try to like round out your head. That's probably also not a good practice if your head is not perfectly round to start modifying that. But it means when you cut your hair, don't cut off the payas. This is binding for men, 
right? Don't cut off the um, the corner. The the I don't know if it's side locks, but the you know the pass. Some people have like really long ones out of uh, you know deference to this law. They want to make it really noticeable, but this is just the point: is don't cut it all the way off, all the way around, and you shall not destroy the edge of your beard. There you go. You shall not make cuts in the in your flesh for a person who died. So if somebody passes away, do not uh, cut the flesh, no cutting of the skin uh, from a state of mourning, from a place of pain. You shall not etch a tattoo on yourselves. I am the Lord. We're going to get into Rashi and all these things. By the way, we once had, a, had an event with a speaker who spoke about the specific form of tattoos that Torah prohibits. And I believe he said... I have to look up the original, but I, if I recall from his talk, it was only black and letters that were problematic. Anyway, okay, verse 29. Not, not, necessarily, not to say that everything else is whatever, but I think specifically this is, a ref, this is referencing black and letters, but we'll, we'll see, Rashi, we'll see what we, what we can find here. You shall not defile your daughter by making her a harlot. I mean, you would think that's obvious. Okay, lest the land fall into harlotry and the land be filled with immorality. You shall observe my Sabbaths and revere my sanctuary. I am the Lord. You shall not turn to the sorcery of Ov and Yedoni. Again, no sorcery. You shall not seek these and thereby defile yourselves through them. I am the Lord your God. You shall rise before a venerable person. Stand up. When somebody respectful comes in, when somebody... uh, um, Somebody respected comes in the room, stand up for them. And you shall respect the elderly, and you shall fear your God. I am the Lord. Respect your elders is not just a phrase that people use in, in you know, whatever, in conversation, but it is a biblical mitzvah. V'hadarta penezakin, respect the elderly. All right, let's go all the way back to Rashi on this reading, and then we will wrap for today. Okay, um, the first three years of the, of the fruit tree shall be blocked, Rashi says, i.e. its fruit shall be blocked and closed up from deriving benefit from it. You don't eat it, you don't sell it, you don't feed it to the animals, you just let it go. It's not yours, don't eat it. It shall be blocked for three years. From when does... Oh, literally it's in Rashi here. From when does one start counting the three-year period? Rashi explains from the time of its planting. Boom. One might think that if one stores away the fruit produced in the first three years after the first three years have elapsed, the fruit will be permissible. Aha! Oh, a life hack. Oh, I love it. Therefore, Scripture says it shall be. The fruit shall remain forbidden status forever. I'm going to tell you, this is amazing. Love this. Love this. Let's say you plant a tree. And year two, you get some fruit. And you're, like, and you're in Israel, ancient Israel, right? And you're like, hmm, about that. I can't eat the fruit. But I have a life hack. Because I have, I just bought on Amazon a dehydrator, right? Again, we're mixing errors. It's okay. I bought a fruit dehydrator. So I'm going to dehydrate this fruit and then vacuum seal it. And it could last according to my, I have no idea how long it lasts. But let's just say it lasts for two years. So now it's after the three-year period. And now I have the dehydrated fruit. I didn't eat it for three years. It's three years have passed. But, um, but the fruit is from that original batch of year two. Prohibited. I mean, right? We saw Rashi. Rashi says even after, even if you didn't eat the fruit in the in the first three years, but you saved it, and I'm giving you a scenario: dried fruit, no good, not kosher. Don't eat it. It's not good for the tree. 
It's not good for the vibes. It's not good for, uh, for the connections. Okay, let's continue. Fourth year shall be holy. What does that mean? Just like the second tithe, concerning which it is also written, of every tithe of the land that is holy to, to God. What does that mean? Just as the tithe may, be, may not be eaten outside the wall of Jerusalem, except after having been redeemed, so is this. And this is a praise to the Lord, for he carries it there to Jerusalem, to lauding a praise to heaven. So essentially, first three years you don't touch. The fourth year, what do you do? You bring it to God. Well, you don't offer it at, on the altar. You don't burn the fruit on the altar. You, the farmer, you can eat it in Jerusalem, in the temple. Or in Jerusalem, in the, in the, in the holy city. So you have to eat it there as part of a spiritual celebration and thanking thanksgiving to God. You eat it there as part of a holy experience. But back on the farm, you don't touch it. Now, you could also redeem it, which means you could um, switch the fruit that grew in year four for money and then take the money and go to Jerusalem and then purchase other fruit and then eat those fruit there. You can redeem it. You can switch it if you don't want to schlep all the fruit to Jerusalem. Does that make sense? Imagine you have like all this fruit. And it's hard to transport. You need wagons and wagons and baskets of, of fruit. So instead, you're like, okay, well, how much is this worth? $1,000? Great. Let me take $1,000 cash, go to Jerusalem, buy more fruit there and eat that there, and we're good. Either way, it has to be eaten in Jerusalem, either it or its redemptive, or its, its replacement, its swap. All right, next. Uh, the fifth year, you can eat it and do this in order to increase its produce. Rashi says, this commandment which you will observe will be in order to increase its produce for you because as its reward, God says, I will bless for you the fruits of your plantings. Rabbi Kiva used to say, the Torah stated this to counter man's evil inclination so that a person should not say, for four years I suffer with this tree for nothing. A person might say, what? I planted this tree and for four years I get nothing. Scripture therefore says here, in order to increase its produce for you, don't worry, it's four years, but in the long run, it's going to be good for you because it's going to be exponentially better and healthier and more robust and produce more if you follow this protocol. I am the Lord. I am the Lord who promises regarding this and who is faithful to keep my promise. God says, I got this. I'm God. Your tree will be blessed. Just follow this. Follow the protocol. All right, don't eat over the blood. What does that mean? So this verse is expounded in many different ways in Sanhedrin. That's the Talmud, as follows. A, it is a warning that one must not eat from the flesh of holy sacrifices before the dashing of the blood. Aha. So every sacrifice, you slaughter the animal, then you sprinkle the blood on the altar, and then you do different things with the meat. Sometimes you burn the whole thing, sometimes you eat part of it. If it's a sacrifice that you can eat the meat from, you cannot eat it before you sprinkle the blood. There's an order. First you sprinkle the blood, and then you figure out what to do with the meat. But if you do it the opposite way, if you ate the blood... Sorry, if you, you shall not eat over the blood. In other words, don't eat with the blood ritual still outstanding. Don't eat the meat if you still haven't done the blood ritual. That's A. B, it is a warning against anyone who eats from an ordinary animal before its soul contained in the blood has fully departed. Oof. Ah, man. I know today the trend is to eat like what I would consider back in the day raw. You with me on this? Like back in the day, like if the meat was pink, we would always say, oh, that's like, hmm. But when I grew up, okay, let's just be, maybe it was just where I grew up and, and maybe it's just the me thing. But I remember, you know, like if something was pink, if something was raw, I don't know, it just didn't, didn't, uh, but today 
It's like, oh, the, the rarer the better, right? Give me rare. Still kicking. So the Torah says, if you want to eat meat, very rare, right? Rare meat. You cannot eat the meat before the animal is dead. So let's say you shech the animal. And I don't know how fast you would have to be to pull this off. But let's say you slaughter the animal. And before it officially is no longer alive, you're able to take to cut out the meat and somehow eat it. That would be not kosher. That would not be good. That's, I don't know who would do that. I'm not saying. Listen. Over the, you know, Torah has been around for 3,300 years. And before that, civilization was around for a while. Look, I'm sure people have done over the years a lot of crazy things, a lot of wild things, including eating animals that were not yet fully deceased. So the Torah prohibits that here. As it says in the verse, you shall not eat over the blood if the animal is still alive, if it's if its soul has not fully departed, you cannot eat the meat. And it's expounded, this verse, in many more ways. Um, and that's all from Sanhedrin 63a, where the Talmud explains what this verse means in various levels. Okay, next. You shall not act on the basis of omens. What does that mean? Like those who interpret the sounds or actions of a weasel or birds as omens for good or for bad. Ah, a black cat crossed my path. Ooh, it's bad luck. Ooh, it's good luck. This, that, or the other. Don't, don't buy into that stuff. That's not a Jewish thing. Or like those who interpret bread falling from his mouth or a deer crossing his path as signs for certain things. Oh, you ate bread and a piece fell out. Ooh, I mean, I don't even know what that means. Um, a deer crossed your path. Again, now we have black cats. But a deer, back in the day, you know, it would be, a, it, it, apparently it was a thing. So don't, don't get caught up in that stuff. All right, you shall not act on the base of lucky hours. Um, Rashi explains that one would say such and such a day is auspicious to begin your work or such and such an hour is unlucky to embark on a journey. Now, the challenge with that is that in Judaism, we do have some lucky days and lucky hours. We literally have Shabbos, which is deemed to be a holy day, which may not be the same as lucky, but it's still special. I mentioned, we've mentioned in other classes that Tuesday is considered to be an auspicious day. If you have a court case, the Talmud says, Jewish law says, uh, I mean, it's not law, but, but our Judaism, Talmud says, Schedule your cases, if you can, on Tuesday because it's got a double measure of good. Isn't that operating by lucky hours? It's a good question. What I think it means is don't operate by their lucky hours. We have our own. We shouldn't look to other cultures that are, might, that, that are based on other stuff. If this is based on the fact that God says on day three, Tuesday, which is actually today, right, that God says twice, Kitov, that it was good, all right, that's not a lucky hour. That's straight up a divine, a divine impression. Okay, next, don't round off the corner of your head. This refers to someone who cuts his hair in such a way that he makes the hair on his temples, even with that behind his ears and on the forehead, the front hairline, thereby causing the hairline surrounding his head to become a circle, since the main hairline behind the ears is a much higher level than the hair on his temples. Okay, essentially, it just means don't cut a straight edge over here. Leave a little bit of a dip um, by the temples. Okay? Don't cut the edge of the beard, uh, the edge, the end of the beard and its borders. And these are five. So there's five spaces of the beard, two on each cheek, at the top edge of the cheek, near the head, where the cheek is broad and has two corners, extremities. The one near the temple and the other at the end of the cheekbone toward the center of the face. Okay. I don't, as, a man, as, as a guy with a beard, I don't even know exactly where that is. Maybe somewhere here, perhaps. 
So don't touch that. And also one below on the chin, the point where the two cheeks join together. Okay. So the, the basic minimum of the beard, at least as mandated here in Torah, is some here, sounds like here and there. It's an interesting look. Not going to lie. It's an interesting look, but the tradition is that many have is to have a full, you know, to just leave something all around. Um, the original prohibition is against the razor, cutting it. Therefore, some people say an electric thing is not so problematic. Consult your local, uh, your local rabbi or Jewish authority on these details. Next, you shall not make cuts in your flesh for someone who passed away. This was the practice of the Amorites. They made cuts in their flesh when a person related to them had died. Etch a tattoo, that is an inscription etched and sunken, never to be erased, i.e. a permanent tattoo. For one etches it with a needle and it remains permanently black. So black is mentioned here. Um, etched. Yeah, this is like a grammatical thing, etymology. Okay, you shall not defy your daughter by making her a harlot. This is speaking of a person who hands over his unmarried daughter to have relations that are not for the purpose of marriage. Okay, well, there you go. That's not, uh, that should not be done. Uh, lest the land fall into harlotry, because if you do so, the land itself will cause its fruits to go astray, producing them elsewhere and not in your land. In other words, the agriculture is going to be compromised if the human behavior is compromised. There's a connection between the people and the land itself and the produce. You shall observe my Sabbaths, Shabbat, and revere my sanctuary. What does that mean? One may not enter the Temple Mount with his walking staff, his shoes, with his money belt, or with the dust on his feet. If you walk on the Temple Mount, that sacred space, you have to walk respectfully. Don't bring your fanny pack with your tourist camera with your uh, dusty um, Teva sandals. And although I warn you regarding the holiness of the sanctuary, God says, nevertheless, you shall observe my Sabbaths. The construction of the sanctuary does not supersede the laws of the Sabbath. So when you build a sanctuary, right, you still have to observe my Sabbaths. You don't build on Shabbos. John Goodman didn't bowl on Shabbos, and we didn't build the temple, the Mishkan, on Shabbos. Let's continue. That is a Big Lebowski reference for those that are wondering. Verse 31. You shall not turn to the sorcery of Oven Yudoni. Rashi says, this is a warning against one who, against one who practices the sorcery of Oven Yudoni. And what were those practices? Inquiring minds, speaking of gossip racks, inquiring minds need to know. So um, one who practices the sorcery of Ov is Pitom the sorcerer. He communes with the dead, as it were, by raising the spirit of the dead, which then speaks from his armpit. Okay. So said dude would say, I'm raising the dead, and they're speaking right here. Okay. Whatever. Don't do that, essentially. And that's Ov. What's Yudoni? And one who practices the source of Yudoni inserts the bone of a creature called Yudoa into his mouth. And the bone speaks from there. It puts a bone in his mouth and it like creates sound or speaks, you know, communicates from there. And don't do that also. You shall not seek, don't occupy yourselves with these types of sorcery. For if you do, you will become defiled before me and I will deem you abominable. I am the Lord your God. Know whom you are exchanging for whom. Right? You're, you're trading me for sorcery? Are you kidding me? It's a bad trade. God says, I have real power. This stuff, Bubba Mises, don't trade me. Don't throw me away for armpits and bones in the mouth. Don't, for the, the armpit talking and bone in the mouth communicating. That is a silly trade. All right, you shall rise before a venerable person and respect the elderly. Rashi says, one might think 
that the commandment refers to rising for an old person, even though he may be guilty of transgression. Scripture therefore says zakin. Zakin refers to one who has acquired wisdom. <coughs> so it means someone who's wise, irrespective of age, you have to rise before. And respect the elderly. What does that mean? One may not sit in his place, speak in his stead, or contradict him. Similar to what we said about parents. Since one is obligated to rise before the elderly only when the latter enters within one's four cubits, if someone is within six feet, six feet, you see, right? Quarantine distance, six feet, you got to stand up for someone who is elderly or respected. So one might think that he may close his eyes when the elder approaches as if he did not see him and thus evade the obligation to rise before him. So what if I close my eyes and I don't see them? Like I see them getting closer. They're approaching like eight feet, seven feet. Whoops, look at this. I don't know. Maybe you turned around. I'll never know. You close your eyes so you don't have to stand up. Therefore, Scripture says, and you shall fear your God, for this matter is privately known to the one who commits it, and no one knows about it except the person himself. And concerning any matter only known to the heart of one person, Scripture says, and you shall fear your God, for God knows man's thoughts. In other words, don't think you'll get away with it, because God knows that you close your eyes to avoid and evade having to stand up out of respect for someone who should be respected. So don't do that. No games. And so what do we discover today? Yeah, a lot of different laws covering a lot of different areas of life and practice. And the common denominator of, I would say, the vast majority of them is be a mensch. Be respectful. Be kind. Be honest. Be ethical. Essential core Jewish values. A lot of things that are not legislated or legislatable in other societies are legislated in Judaism. Because Judaism is at the core, built on a foundation of values. And if you want to know more about that, don't forget, it's Beyond Right, starting next week. Free trial if you want to try it out. Try it out, first class, no charge. And then uh, you, can, you can decide after that. Tuesday night, May 10th at 8 p.m. Thursday, May 12th at noon. Online, in person, join us for that experience in townjewishacademy.org slash Law. It's also on our homepage, intownjewishacademy.org. Okay. Great to see everybody. Ray and Olia and Joy and Sarah. Any questions or comments before we close it out? Is there a class tonight? So there's no class tonight, but okay. there is an event tonight. We have the wine and cheese event oh, that's right. tonight. That's right. So that is tonight. Um, and then next week, we're starting the new JLI course, Beyond Right. Thanks. Pleasure. What and time if, is the, yeah. sorry, what time is the wine and cheese event today? 7.30 in Jeff's place. Okay. Se- Isn't it like a, also a YGP class at 7.30 Jeff's place? That's a really good question. I'm not sure. But I'll check okay. on it. I don't, be- I don't believe so because we would have, have noticed if there was a, okay. uh, a conflict. But I'll, I'll, I'll check on that. Okay, I, don't, I thought it was, but uh, yeah, I'm not sure now. Maybe, let me see if I can find something on the internal calendar here. Let's see what I can find. Give me a moment. No, I don't see, and actually, I don't see a YJP class okay, on the calendar. Give me one. Maybe it didn't start. Maybe it's not starting this week. Hold on. Let me see if I can find out the intel. Give me a second. Is Rabbi Levy here? No. There's no YJP class tonight, is there? In there? Okay. All right, we are not aware of a, uh, of a YJP class there. Um, so, okay. I, I guess it's all wine and cheese all the time. 
<laughs> All right. Great. All right, folks, if you're not yet uh, signed up for it and want to join, not too late. We've got plenty of wine, plenty of cheese, and it's going to be a lot of fun. All right, we'll see you all uh, soon. Have a wonderful day, and once again, dedicated to learning in honor of Lillian Ray's sister. May her, may her memory be for a blessing. Have a wonderful day. Ray, that was a beautiful tribute. Yes, thank, thank you, Ray, for sharing. All right, we'll see you all soon. Take care. Thank you, Rabbi. Pleasure, pleasure. Take care. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. As always, you can find us online at IntownJewishAcademy.org and on YouTube at IntownJewishAcademy. New episodes of the podcast come out a few times a week. If you don't want to miss a single episode, then hit the subscribe button. If you enjoyed today's episode, please take a moment to leave a rating or review. It means a lot to me and it helps other people find the podcast. Thanks so much for listening and I hope you have a wonderful day.